Thank you for joining us on Warrior Women Speak. I'm Judge Rosemary Aquilina, author of Just Watch Me, and I'm joined with my co-host, Sherry Botwin, LCSW, social worker and trauma specialist and author of Thriving After Trauma, Stories of Living and Healing. We have created this podcast for your enjoyment and so that we all can talk about our issues and learn together about how to deal with trauma and those things that spring up in our everyday life. Please join us for every episode and let us know what you want to talk about. Now for the show. Rape culture is an environment in which rape is prevalent and in which sexual violence is normalized. And that's why today's title is called Combating Rape Culture. It is something that we are surrounded by with the media. It's part of our popular culture. And that's a really sad statement. And there's lots of examples of rape culture. We're going to talk about some of those. Blaming the victim, she asked for it, is one of the ones that drives me insane, as well as boys will be boys, which minimizes responsibility and basically says it's all of our fault. And of course, when men are raped, they're supposed to man up, which shames and blames them because if they speak out, then they are less than. And somebody who speaks out is more than. What do you see in your practice with rape culture? Because I see it in front of me on the bench. It's sadly, I feel it's here to stay. We have got to do something to get rid of it and flip the script. But what do you see in counseling? What I see is very similar now to what we saw before hashtag me too. One of the things that as you're talking about the rape culture, I think we've made a lot of progress but I still have people sitting in my office. I was just talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago who was assaulted while she was on a date. And the first thing she said to me was that maybe if I had this, he wouldn't have that. So that victim blaming and also women and men who have been assaulted feeling like if only I had done that, if only I didn't do this, if maybe I wore that. So I feel like this is a really important topic. I think I, I want to see change. I want people to come into my office and not sit and blame themselves. I want them to come in and tell me how angry they are and how enraged they are that there's still people out there that think that they can get away with these types of crimes. That's what I want. And I don't think we're there yet. Not even close. You know, it's interesting because in the military, and I had to do this a couple of times, I had to go into the men's barracks and say, you will not be watching that triple X movie. I know we're at camp. I know that you're away from your wives and girlfriends, but we're not going to do this. And part of the issue there was that there were always a few people who wanted to watch it, but the man or two or three who didn't want to watch it was fearful of saying, turn that stuff off. It's offensive because then they would be bullied and harassed and made fun of. And I think what we need to do is, again, flip that the script so that if you say, I don't want to watch it, mm-hmm. you are 
honored. Your words and your thought process there is honored instead of blaming you for being weak or being a sissy or whatever those bullying words are. Because the only way that we can stop this is to speak out. And what I see and hear all the time is that it's okay to be sexually aggressive because that makes you a man. It's okay to um, score with however many women or men as the case may be. It's okay to laugh. In fact, you must laugh at sexually explicit jokes because otherwise, what do you mean you don't think that's funny and you're bullied? And we really need to change the conversation the way we look at this and look at a sign of strength when someone says, stop, you cannot do it. Believe me, I wasn't always popular when I had to go in the men's barracks and say, we're not having that movie today, pull it, or you know, you're reported. Um, and sometimes in the women, women's barracks too, but as a JAG officer, I had to, you know, make sure that people followed the law. And, and if I saw something, uh, take care of it. And we need to do more of that. We need to do so much more of that. And I think what you're addressing right now is the idea of consent and what it means. And you're also talking about the societal pressure, especially when you talk about the difference between men and women. It, when you're uh, talking about the situation with the guys and how there are some guys that will feel the way you feel, who will feel like, I don't want to be watching that stuff. I don't want to be laughing or being, being inappropriate about women. It's actually really on my mind today because earlier today, I was talking to your friend that, that you introduced me to, Abigail Pesta. She's doing a piece on men and sexual abuse and part of the rape culture when it comes to men is that society doesn't think that they are victims. They look at men and assume if you're a guy, you're a perpetrator. If you're a woman, you're a victim, but that's not true. There are many men out there who have felt very similar to people who have been raped women, women, females. And I think it's really important when it comes to consent and understanding that we need to be able to have a voice and say, no, it's sometimes it's actually more difficult for men because they're guys and they're expected to be a certain way just because they're guys. Well, and there's a misconception that if a man is raped, they must've been raped by a woman. There's a lot of, like the Dr. Anderson case, we'll have John Vaughn come on our show at some point, but Dr. Anderson, who is now deceased out of U of M, assaulted thousands of boys, young men. And he did that by giving them prostate exams uh, every single month. And many of those men were embarrassed to talk about it, didn't know it was wrong. When they got older, they wouldn't go to the doctor. Some of them have had many failed marriages. Some have died of cancer because they wouldn't go to the doctor. There's all sorts of outcomes. And people don't think about men suffering because they were assaulted. And there's a lot of victim blaming. You know, why are you coming forth now, 30 or 40 years later? And we have a tendency, whether it's a man or woman, to marginalize the victim and to remove, the, I think, ourselves and not me, I try not to, I know not you, but essentially I'm using that generically, but 
uh, people who victim blame, I think, want to be removed from the unpleasantness and not acknowledge their own vulnerability. And of course, if they accuse the victim, then they see the victim as being weak and they somehow are stronger when in fact, it's the reverse. Somebody who sees it, doesn't report it, doesn't acknowledge it in my book is not only a co-conspirator, but is the weakest person in the room. And that's a whole nother piece to the rape culture. I think we're sort of, as we're starting the show, we're bringing up so many topics within this topic. And I feel like we could probably take each of those topics and have hours long conversations, trainings. We could probably both write a book just on the impact of having co-conspirators be part of your trauma, because that in and of itself, that's a whole nother issue with betrayal and feeling unprotected. So there's so many, there's so many layers and the impact and the fallout. And I think that's one of the things that as a society, people don't want to look at, you know, the statistics are alarming. When you look at the statistics, one in three women will, will experience sexual assault on a college campus. We're not talking about only like a little bit of the population, one in three. So that means many people are walking around out there and understand full well what it's like because they've had it happen to them. So, well, and I think it's not one in three. I think it's one in three who they get that number from reporting. Report and it, I, yeah. and I, I only say that because, yeah. and I just talked actually to about a hundred students at Michigan State who are part of a group trying to solve this. And when I listen to them, and of course, you know, Rain, I think, has some of the best statistics, and I, I've seen the same numbers as you, except that from what I know and from all of the people who come up to me, and I know they come up to you as well, that haven't reported, I have to believe that it is half of all women and more so in college, because I think that between the ages of 17 and about 32, you're most vulnerable. And those numbers might be off a little bit, but it's my old recollection, but that is a really vulnerable group. And I think it's half the women. I think you can look to the right and look to the left of wherever you're sitting and, and each side of you has been raped if you haven't been. I'm, I'm so glad that you're saying that because actually I remember as I was reading the statistics, which I did get from rain, I remember thinking as I'm reading that, well, yeah, that's one in three, meaning one in three who have reported, but you, I think you're absolutely right. If you when we sit down with our close friends or when I go and do workshops or when you talk to students, I'm not sure if you've had this experience, but whenever I went out and went to a college campus and I usually was there to talk about eating disorders and where they come from and that in many cases, eating disorders are a result of some type of assault. Every time I did a workshop, somebody either stood up in the workshop and acknowledge that they were an abuse or assault survivor, or I heard from them minutes or hours after I did the workshop. So I'm glad that you're saying that because I think one of the things also about being a victim, being a survivor of, of sexual assault and abuse, this is something that comes up for me all the time and people that I work with, we feel like we don't fit in. We feel different than other people. We feel like what's wrong with me? Why am I like this? And if you think about it, we're not in the minority. There's so many people that feel the same way, but the problem with the culture that we live in is that we still walk around keeping so much of what we think, 
what we feel, what we know, we keep so much of that inside. That's part of what leaves us feeling all of the shame and the fear. So it's a very isolating experience and it, it shouldn't have to be that way. Well, and this rape culture is really, really dangerous because of course the perpetrators always blame the victim. They didn't do anything wrong. And so the victim on top of being victimized, whether they're raped or bullied or whatever's gone on, that whatever trauma they've endured, there's victim blaming. And that makes it harder for them to come forward and report the abuse because they themselves feel like I did something wrong. And then we have this culture where we don't know what to do with them. We don't blame them. We say the why word, which, you know, I hate. Why did, why didn't you tell me sooner? Why did you wear that? Why is this happening now? Why are you coming forward now? And you, all the why questions would shame and blame. And what we should do is believe them and get them the right help. And we really need to, from the very first instance, we hear of any kind of abuse, assault, violence, tell the victim that it's not their fault, nor, and here's what I really think is important, is nor is it their responsibility to fix the situation. We need to put it in the hands of the uh, court system, the law enforcement, a capable therapist to help them understand it, but it's not their responsibility to fix a perpetrator or to fix themselves. They didn't do anything wrong. They need to relearn that they matter and they're valuable. And that's where you come in. And that's the piece that leaves many people feeling silent. They don't think that they're going to find somebody that's going to actually tell them that they believe them or that they're going to help them or that they're there to advocate for them. I think in some ways, that's more of a problem than the actual going through the trauma that there's no... I don't want to say there's nowhere to go because again, I think as a society, we we're, we're working on this, but I can tell you that there are so many people that I meet who do these things in their mind where they tell themselves, well, it wasn't that bad. Maybe it was my fault. Maybe I shouldn't have gone on that date with that guy. They, we, we tell ourselves, it's almost like we trick ourselves. We convince ourselves that we weren't raped. A lot of times I hear that and I'm going to, um, I'm going to, I want to tell you a story that is driving me crazy. And I want to know what you think about this, because the other piece of it is that when we walk around feeling like we don't even know what happened to us or we bury it, then we get triggered and we get triggered in situations where we're not expecting it because that's how life works. And then that causes for many people, the depression, the addiction, the eating disorder, the PTSD, that causes it to explode. And that's when people start going out and committing crimes or causing harm onto themselves that and lead them into hospitals or relationships getting all messed up. So I want, I want to ask you what you think about this. Um, I, I talked to somebody this week that I've known for 11 years now. She's in her late 20s and she just started talking openly about being the a victim of intimate partner violence. I was seeing her in therapy. I talked about her before on this show. I was seeing her in therapy as she was being sexually assaulted by this monster. I didn't know about the assault until five years after I met her. So I just came back from vacation and we had a session this week and she was called for jury duty. She tried to tell the judge that she didn't want to be a candidate for 
jury duty. She didn't know what the case was, but she said, I would like to be excused because she also sees, she also sees patients. But the truth is she didn't want to have to go to the jury duty selection because she was afraid. What if this is a case about sexual assault? Well, the judge did not excuse her. The judge said she needed to show up for the jury selection. And she said to me, and I'm telling you, when I heard this, I wanted to call you and be like, can you please tell me if this is right? Because it made me so flipping mad. She was on a Zoom with all the uh, people that were there with the judge. What the judge did was the judge explained to all of the potential jurors, this, this, is, this is a case against a guy who sexually assaulted an eight-year-old over the course of five years. One of the things that I'm gonna be doing in this selection is I'm going to be asking each of you if you have ever been raped. So she goes on to say this. Now I'm talking to um, my client and I'm not saying her name, but I will say that I love and respect her and think she's so brave. If that were me, I think I probably would have inadvertently hit the end button and somehow left the Zoom. She did not do that. She said, I could feel my body getting all sweaty. I could feel my eyes welling up with tears. I wasn't allowed to leave the screen. Her husband was out for work, so he wasn't home. And she's somebody that's been talking about this for five years. She's been in therapy. She sees me every week. So then she goes on to explain to me that the judge told all of the um, potential jurors details about what this man did to this little girl. So she's saying to me, Sherry, I did not know that I was still, I, I knew you were going to, I can see you over there. You're probably like, will you shut up already, Sherry? I have something to say, but I'm not done yet. <laughs> I'm not stopping because I have to finish. So what, I, what I want to do, I want to hear the rest of this. Uh, what I want to do is have a strong little chat with this judge okay, and tell good. them exactly how wrong they are. But okay, well, good. story and I'll tell you what should happen. Okay, good. Because that's the other thing. As a therapist, I'm there to help her manage her feelings, but honestly, legally, I don't know what her rights are. So she says to me, I sat there on that Zoom. I had flashbacks. Do you, do you know what she actually said to me? She said, I felt like I was on trial. She said, this judge was telling us, you know, you have to, you have to this, you have to that, all this stuff. And I'm thinking, Right now, I feel like who are we? Who's the what's the trial for? Because now I feel like the judge is assaulting my client. That's what I'm feeling. Yeah. Um, so what ended up happening was she went through the whole all the charges. Um, and, and so my client and I were talking, and again, I didn't tell her to tell to tell me what the judge said because I would certainly didn't want her to have to repeat it. Then what happened was the judge put them in a breakout room. And she talked to each of them. So after spending, I guess, four hours on the Zoom and being completely traumatized and having flashbacks, um, she said to me, thankfully, I was the first one. So I don't know how many people were in the Zoom, but she was the first one, I think, because her name starts with like a C, maybe that's why. I don't know if she went alphabetically. And she said, one of the first things she said to me was, before we get started, I need to ask you, have you ever been the victim of, or do you know somebody close to you? She said, all I said was yes. That's all she said. That's all I said. I didn't even say I was raped. All she said was yes. And the judge said to her, you are dismissed. So 
I feel like what this is a woman who's a judge who's who's I mean, I'm not sure how to say this, but aren't you supposed to not be biased? Aren't you supposed to be able to sit in this in the seat of the victim and the perpetrator? What in the heck is this? So then for days after that, my client is having flashbacks, is afraid of her husband, is feeling all these things. And there's good parts to the story. And I'm sure I'll talk about that today. But I want to ask you, because today's topic is about rape culture. To me, that was something that should not have happened. It shouldn't happen. Okay. Here's, here's well, it should, it's a little bit of a crossover, I guess, answer. We have to make sure that we have fair and impartial juries, but there are always, there's always somebody in the jury pool who will be upset by an assault, a rape, a car accident. It doesn't matter what kind of case because we all suffer different experiences. But especially when I have cases of rape, especially child abuse or rape of a child, incest, things like that, that people don't hear all the time and that I know happens to half of the world. Uh, what I do, which I, you know, we have to figure out, is it a fair and impartial jury? Will this bother them? I call in extra jurors. So I might call in 100 or 120 jurors because I know I'm going to lose at least half of them. And the first thing I do, so really I end up with standing room only in my courtroom and I tell them very quickly, you're going to have a seat. And I say, this case is about, and I might say, this is a, a mm -hmm. case about an eight-year-old who was sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. And I don't read the information. I don't do anything else. I tell them the topic. So will it if it will be difficult for you to sit through this, please raise your hand. That's what, okay. Then I say, you know, I call on them and I never use names because additionally, um, for the safety of the jurors, we don't use names, we use numbers. I fought for that within our, our circuit and finally won. And I've never used names. I've always used numbers and we finally got a program. So people are a number. And I tell them that's because I want it that way, because I want to respect their privacy. And I, people are, especially if they've been raped or assaulted, they don't want a defendant to know their name. Right. And it's a sense of security and they're doing a great service to the community. So right. I'll refer to them as their number. And then I will say, please tell me your number. And will you have, a, and they'll raise their hand. And I say, okay, uh, can you tell me your number? And they'll say seven, seven, one, two, or whatever it is. And will it be difficult for you? Yes. And that sometimes, very often people will say, my daughter, my sister, my husband, and I, or myself, and I will cut them off and say, I don't need to know the details. You are excused. You know, or I'm very sorry that happened. You're excused. And they go, I have had women exactly, and a few men too, exactly like you're describing who literally have run out of the courtroom, but I only let it go so far. So I just let them know the topic. Mm -hmm. And then I don't have, I don't want to know any details. I feel like we have hit, I think it was in Michigan, the first hybrid jury trial and maybe the United States. It was now, I, I want to say a couple of years ago, but when during the midst of COVID and it took me a while to find a trial where the attorneys would agree. Attorneys are not so keen on Zoom jury selection because in school, just so people understand, we are taught about connecting with the jury. Well, I'm here to tell you that it took as much time to do the Zoom jury selection on Zoom as in the courtroom, and there was absolutely a connection. And 
what we did is we selected the jury on Zoom and then we went into the courtroom for the full trial. And as I've done for 18 years with every single jury, after a trial, after the verdict, we go in and talk to them personally, thank them. And then of course we can answer their questions. And I do it as a learning experience and to make sure that they're comfortable with their decision. And at some point we should probably do a show on carrying the burden when you have to make a decision on behalf of your loved one, or even on behalf of as a jury pool to decide something over someone's life. So I do this huge conversation with them and the lawyers and prosecutors. And if I have students with me join in and we have this great conversation and jurors across the board for 18 years, I still run into them everywhere I go, even from jury trials 18 years ago that say, thank you so much because it relieved me of the burden. Now as to the Zoom, the conversation that we had was something like, you're the first ones, how did you feel about it? And 100% of them, not you know, eight out of 12, but all 12 said, please do this again. We were comfortable sitting in our living room. I didn't have to worry about getting to court. I wasn't frightened of the courtroom. I was able to see and hear clearly. I felt so comfortable with my dog at my feet, even though I was alone in the room, I followed your instructions. And then because of the, what I saw on Zoom, I felt absolutely comfortable coming then into the courtroom. I knew what to expect from the instructions that you read. Now, surprisingly, the attorneys who had said, we don't want to do this. And I said, well, we can always have a redo if you really don't like it. Uh, and we'll talk about it, but let's try this because the docket's so congested and we don't have a control over COVID and how long it's going to last. So afterwards, all the attorneys involved said, wow, it worked so terrific. You know, we'll consider doing it again. Now, we're not going to be doing it in my courtroom on perhaps a capital case. A capital case has, uh, is punishable by life. But in some of the other cases, um, I absolutely want to do it. I can't find lawyers who want to do it, but I'm going to push the buttons because I think we have to think about juror safety. We have to think about their comfort. And of course, when you have someone like your client who is completely stressed out because they are a victim and they need to be able to say, I can't be part of this case, they're in their own surroundings. So when I say, and you're excused, they can turn it off and go sit with their dog immediately. They don't have to drive home. They can go and sit at their kitchen table. They can go uh, watch something silly on TV, whatever it does to relax them. And I think it's absolutely imperative that we consider about those people that we traumatize during jury selection because they're not used to hearing these kinds of things and because they might have been through that same kind of trauma. You know, one of the things that we're talking about today when we talk about the jury selection process, we talk about ending rape culture, we're talking about how difficult life is for people after they experience something like sexual assault. I think the, the common population, people who haven't been through it, don't understand like this judge that we were talking about. People don't understand how easily triggered we can be. And I feel it once we've gone through something like this, it's our responsibility partly to figure out what do I need to do to create safety for myself? How do I best manage these feelings? And 
this is an important topic that we're talking about because this is just one example of what can send people off into suicidal thoughts, flashbacks, self-destructive behaviors. Thankfully, uh, you know, my client has been working through this stuff for years. If that had been, she, I think she even said to me in the session, if that were five or 10 years ago, I don't know what I would have done. So I, I, I'm so glad that we're talking about this because I think, you know, I think again, people don't think about we're, we're focused on the jury or we're focused on the defendant and the victim, but we're not really until today, we're not talking about the impact that these trials have on everyone involved, like the Cosby trial. I know that's something that um, we're going to talk about for a couple minutes. There were well, so let's jump in before we get into that. Yeah. Um, you know, your client, and I want you to pass this on to her and, and for those people listening, especially if they have a trauma therapist like you, if they are triggered because their child was murdered, because their father was murdered, because they were raped, whatever the trigger is, and they are going to be clearly triggered in a court of law, one of the things they can do is present a letter from a doctor about this timely and then reschedule their jury selection or get off for a year or until they there is, because you usually can only get off for a year, but they could represent it until they are ready to hear that, that kind of case. And maybe they can get off permanently, maybe not, but they can a year at a time with uh, doctor or therapist note, work with the jury clerk and the chief judge to set out their uh, jury trial. But again, I just want to reiterate that Zoom is great for this because you can get off really quickly and you can have your pet right there by your side to hold. Um, and I just think it's a, it's a great thing, but people should know that they can delay their jury duty. It is a duty. It's a great duty. But if they were to contact you, and you wrote them a letter, I would accept it. Well, that is so good to know. I'm going to pass that on to all the people that are in this situation. I, I will admit, and it's I don't like to talk about this because it makes me feel a little bit guilty, but very early in my recovery, I was, I was selected to be on a jury. And what I did, and again, this was 20 years ago, I wrote a letter. I don't remember who I sent it to. And I said, I'm currently in intensive therapy, recovering from childhood abuse. I cannot or do not feel I'm in a place where I could serve. They, they excuse me. I wasn't even called. And I did struggle at the time feeling like, well, why, why couldn't I have just done that? That's such a cop-out. 20 years later, I think about, no, that was where I was then. And thank goodness I was able to do that. And maybe again, it was different than this was 20 years ago. I got a letter back within a week saying you're excused. So I think whatever it is that we need to do to empower ourselves and also again, as sexual assault survivors to be able to respect the places that we are will change from year to year, decade to decade. Now I feel like I could sit in your courtroom and you could ask me questions and I would imagine you would probably release me but I could show up for the opportunity. But I, this is 21 years later. Well, and that is so empowering for you to say, hey, I made it through the door. I was able to sit there with the group. I was able then to advocate for myself in front of that scary judge. And I think there is some empowerment there too. And if you're able to sit, you're able to sit. Um, but what, whatever place you're in, advocating for yourself is part of your healing. And it's okay if you can't do it now, but tomorrow is another day, as I always say. Absolutely. 
Yeah. And, and I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I know you were mentioning Cosby. And I think that um, talking about Cosby, because you actually sat through the trial and he was set free in a technicality. And it's what, a year later? And so what happens is every time there is a legal error, we re-victimize victims, don't we? Absolutely. We absolutely do. You know, we've had, it's now 10 months. He was released on June 30th. So it's been 10 months. And I think about some of the conversations I've had with some of the witnesses, some of the attorneys, and even just people in my daily life, colleagues, I've done some writing about it. And as upsetting and as horrifying as that day was, at this point, I feel very differently about it. I feel like when somebody gets away with something that they've done to cause harm to others, they're not really set free. I know that initially the questions that people came to me asking was, is this a setback for sexual assault survivors? Does this mean that less people are going to come forward? And I said it that day, and I still believe this. I don't believe it's a setback at all. I think if anything, it's an opportunity to repair and fix the system where it needs attention. And I think like we were saying before we came on today, when, when, when I talked to people about his conviction, he was not let out of prison because his, his guilty verdict was overturned. He's still guilty on all three counts. I think it's so important that we remember that. And there are so many of us who will never get this opportunity to confront our abuser, to be able to get the acknowledgement that we want or need. The number of people, and I don't have the statistics on this, but the number of people who are tried for these type of crimes and are actually convicted, they're not very high. And I don't think we don't need Cosby to stay in prison to move forward in the ending the rape culture. That's not what we need. We need our voices to continue to get louder and we need to keep talking about the impact, the, the impact of sexual assault and where that, where that leaves us. And I think, again, I don't think that we're going to be set back because of this. Um, I've been thinking a lot about it this week, I think, because April 26, which is the day after this episode airs, was the day I sat in that courtroom four years ago and witnessed what felt like historical. It felt like I couldn't even believe it was happening. Somebody was actually found guilty of a crime that rarely happens. So I think it's important as we move through the years and as we talk about ending the rape culture that we focus on like we we're doing today, we focus on making it safer for survivors, finding ways to fix the judicial system not focusing on how mad we are that Cosby has been set free. Like I said on the other show we did about him, I could give a shit what he's doing. That's not my focus. My focus is what can I do and what are we doing on this show and what can how do I help my clients to live the lives they want to live even after having been sexually assaulted. Well, I think the interesting thing about court and I know I have sexual assault cases weekly in my courtroom because I have a hundred percent docket and, and it's very sad, but the thread that goes through all of the cases is that once it finally gets through to a plea or dismissal or a jury trial, whatever happens, it is some kind of closure. 
and people have to then deal with that closure because knowing the answer, you can then start to deal with whatever the outcome is. And the sad part about Cosby is there was closure. There were people healing and so many people were vindicated. And then this legal thing happens and now it opens the wounds again because it says, geez, we went through all of that for what? Well, it's never for nothing because standing up to a predator in any capacity strengthens not only yourself and starts your healing, but somebody else. It has a huge rippling effect. And when you consider that every 68 seconds, an American is assaulted. And if you consider that out of every 1,000 perpetrators, only nine, only 25 are actually brought to trial, 975 perpetrators walk free. 25 of them, a number of different things happen. Many of them do not go to jail or prison. Some of them will. Um, you know, how is that? What is that? I don't, I don't even know. I didn't do the math on it because I'm not a math person, but what is that? 1%? Terrible. I mean, that's just horrible. Yeah. So, you know, of course, as a judge, I have to deal in evidence and it's innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But when I look at 975 walking free out of a thousand cases, I see clearly there's something wrong. Is it the evidence? Is it threatening? If you proceed with this, something bad will happen. I mean, what are the reasons that people don't come forward? And many of the reasons are exactly what we saw with Cosby, because what did they do it all for? And I just want to say to people, don't let that be a chilling effect. Come forward. The process is only as good as you make it. And being part of the solution, using your voice will help not only you, but the next person. And even if your perpetrator goes free or is never found, at least you have said no more. I want accountability. And then the next person stands with you and the next person. And before you know it, we don't just have one person. We have 10 and 100 and 1,000. So standing together, we can fix this and demand accountability and change, but standing alone and doing nothing, you're really wallowing in your pain. And I'm not blaming you, but if you really want change, see a therapist, your secret keeper, and try to be that person who stands up and says no more, even if it's just saying no more in the mirror. You don't have to tell the world. Yeah. You just have to acknowledge yourself that you're valuable. I was just thinking that when you were just talking about coming forward and not standing alone, I was thinking about there's many people who will never either be able to or choose to go to the police or go public, but there's so much, the, the, the phrase stand up and move forward. It has so much meaning to me in a different way, I guess, because I'm a therapist and yeah. I know for myself and a lot of people that I've met, our ways of speaking and standing up for ourselves, it looks different than maybe some of the people that you meet. And it's okay, because as long as we are getting the support that we need, it's not okay that perpetrators are set free or that they're not held accountable. But I do believe this, even though I never went to court, I do believe that I am holding my perpetrators accountable by the life that I've chosen to live. And I'm thinking of about 50 different clients as we're sitting here where I would say, and this one did this, and this one wrote that, and this one went to this. I was working with a, a college student 
who went back to her high school. She was only 18 or 19. And she went back and talked to the freshman and sophomore about what is consent. She did not report her assault, but she went back and she said, I'm going to go talk to those boys and girls and maybe I can get them before it's too late. So that was her way of standing up and speaking up and be moving forward. And I think there's so many ways to do that. And when, you know, when we think about ending, ending or combating the rape culture, what I would love to hear, because I know you have a whole list over there. Can you share with us what yeah. that actually means? Well, and I, I, I just want to say, you know, first of all, I have not been a sexual assault survivor. I know many, there are some in my family. Um, but I have survived other things that to me were traumatic. So I have found it's okay to look in the mirror in the light in your eyes and be your own best friend. And if you can just do that, even through tears in your eyes, that is meaningful. So you don't have to publicly disclose anything, but at least be truthful with yourself because you have to heal from within. So there's my little tidbit because that has really helped me always stand by myself because I always knew that I was my own best friend and we are all our own superheroes. So as for combating the rape culture, I've thought about this. I'm sure there's a, a thousand other things you can add to this list, but I think we need to all start working together to make that list and we need to avoid using language or tolerating language that objectifies or degrades women or bisexual, whatever it is, why does that matter to someone? I mean, I don't talk about my sex life. I don't want you to talk about it either. And it's none of your business. So why are we doing that? Stand up for someone and just say, stop and speak out. If you hear someone else making an offensive joke or trivializing rape or sexual assault or wrongful touching, whatever it is, it is not a joke. It is not funny. If a comedian's talking about that and you find it offensive, turn them off. If a friend says they've been raped, then take your friends seriously, be supportive, take them to the hospital, the doctors, wherever they want to go, make them feel safe and believed and loved, because that is really half the battle. They have to know that they didn't do anything wrong. And then think about physical space. So you don't have to get up into someone's face to talk to them. Keep an arm's length. If you want to touch someone, ask permission. Teach your children that someone has to ask permission to touch them and they have the absolute right to say no and know that all of you have the absolute right to say no. And if someone is offended by that, walk away. They are not the people that are going to support you. And regardless of what happens, whether someone, whether it's your child who's been raped or bullied or your friend, just always let them know it doesn't have to be rape. They could be bullied. They could be sexually harassed, that it's not their fault and hold abusers accountable for their actions. Don't let them make excuses like, well, it's the victim's fault. She shouldn't have been wearing that, or she shouldn't have worn that perfume or, well, you know, I never would have done that except that I was drunk or high or both. I mean, that's not an excuse and the law doesn't see it as an excuse almost every week I have someone who's committed a crime and they're using alcohol or illegal drugs or prescription drugs mixed with alcohol as the excuse for beating their spouse or raping someone. And they somehow think that that shields them from accountability. It does not. It is a crime. Don't just go high and say, now I'm going to break the law because I can, because if I don't remember it, it didn't happen. 
it did happen. You are accountable and we'll get you. And always communicate with your sexual partners. You know, don't assume consent. If someone doesn't want to have sex with you, even though normally they do, it's okay. Take a break from it. Watch a movie. Talk. Uh, no means no. Even if you are married to that person, you're dating that person, someone might not feel well or just not be in the mood. That's okay. And if it's not okay, if your partner says it's not okay, walk away. There's always somebody else who will, it will be in your life to respect you. And don't let anybody shape or define who you are sexually, emotionally, or in any other fashion. You decide you have a right to say yes. You have a right to say no. You have a right to speak up for yourself and be active. Don't be a bystander because when you're a bystander, you are also an accomplice to someone else's bad behavior. Choose your own behavior. Speak out, speak up, speak loudly, speak often. Those are some of my tips. What an amazing list. Well, but now I want all of you to add on to it. Oh, well, there you go. Maybe people can write to us and say if there's anything we left out or anything that Judge Aquilina didn't mention. That's an amazing list. I'm sitting here trying to stay in my seat as you speak. And I feel like even on the list, there's five more show topics. How to support a friend. How to advocate for yourself how to move out of the blame and the shame because the many people come into my office and they tell me if I didn't do this, if I wasn't wearing that, if I didn't say yes to that. So you experience it when you hear the perpetrators. I hear it when somebody comes in after they've been assaulted, telling me what they think they did or didn't do that made it happen. So it's an amazing list. I think this is such an uh, important topic and we could probably have a year's worth of shows just on this topic. And we should have a few others. And I, you know what I want to add, and maybe we should just do a show on this is um, social media. So if you are in a fight with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your best friend, or your mother, your father, stay off social media, don't post about it. And certainly if someone has raped you, go to law enforcement, don't post about it. Um, we need to keep the evidence where it belongs. And we need to have people tried in a court of law by a jury and have the process work. When you start using social media to combat something, it really gets blown out of proportion. And I think often it becomes unsafe. It's stalking behavior and it's just not the place for it. So use the legal methods that we have. And you know, if something's really important, keep it off social media, talk to a trained therapist like Sherry, uh, talk to law enforcement, um, talk to, if you're in, in college, talk to the Title IX office or what have you, you need to make sure that you're safe and disclosing on social media can be very damaging. And you can find yourself at the end of a lawsuit, even though you were the one that was wronged. Like you said, that's a whole nother show in and of itself. A whole nother show, but we'll get there. We will get there. We could probably go on and on and on. Um, and I think it was it's great to talk to you about this topic because your perspective is one that we rarely hear about. So I really do appreciate that you can what you can share with us. And I think this was a, a really important conversation. I'm hoping it leaves people with lots of feelings of hope and empowerment. So join us combating rape culture. If you need help, find a trained trauma therapist and be your own best friend. And we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us today on Warrior Women Speak. 
It truly is an honor to be able to sit down with Judge Aquilina and have such meaningful conversations. Stay tuned. Each Monday, we will be releasing new episodes in the hopes that we will inspire, uplift, and instill hope. Be sure to subscribe now to at Warrior Women Speak. Until next time.